You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, we'll read the first, uh, first 12 verses, but really we're going to be covering at least in part the whole chapter here tonight. Nehemiah chapter 8, it says in verse 1, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding, upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday. Amen. And you think 12 verses sounds long. (laughs) Before the men and the women and those that could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood which they had made for the purpose and beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Aniah and Urijah and Hilkiah and Maaseah on his right hand and on his left hand Padiah and Mishael and Malchiah and Hashem and Hashbadanah, Zechariah and Meshulam. Just so you know, moment of transparency, I did not practice reading those out loud before I got up here. That's our, one of your worst nightmares as a preacher. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up of their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, here we go again, Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah and Jamin and Akab, Shabbathai, Hodijah, Maaseah, Kalida, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, which is Tirshatha, and Ezra, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said unto them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink the sweet and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy. Neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth because they had understood the words that were declared Unto them. What a passage. And what we are seeing right here is an instance of revival in God's Word. 
And there's some important things. I, this is going to be a simple message, but it's some important elements, or I might, you might say conditions that were present that were priming them for revival. Calling it tonight just primed conditions for revival. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you bless the reading of your word. Thank you for it. I pray that it be clear tonight. Help us to apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. J. Vernon McGee told a story of two little old ladies walking out of church one Sunday. And one said, my, that preacher certainly preaches for a long time. Her friend replied, no, he really doesn't preach a long time. It just seems like a long time. I'm sure, I thought we'd get some laughter there, but that's okay. I'm sure some of you can relate that to certain messages preached around here. Feels long and probably is long. But I wonder what those two little ladies would have thought or said if they had been there at the Watergate service here in Nehemiah chapter 8. See, verse 3 states that Ezra the priest or scribe read the law from the morning until midday. And my understanding is that they read God's word for about six hours. And that's incredible. Maybe even more incredible, though, is that in verse number 1, it says this all took place at the request of the people. Read that again. It says, they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. They spake to Ezra. And what we find here in Nehemiah chapter 8 is the people are ready for spiritual renewal. The people are hungry for revival. They're hungry for God's word. And tonight I just want to look at some of the conditions involved that made revival possible in the children of Israel right here. See, last week we saw how Nehemiah prepared them or strengthened the people, prepared them for revival by making things like worship matter and making spirituality matter and making people matter. And after the wall is built, Nehemiah has brought the people to the point of togetherness. There's a unity there. They're, they're together. They're of the same mind. They're going the same direction. They're unified. And verse 1 makes it clear when it says, All the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And what we see here is that I really believe that revival starts with a desire. It starts with a desire in the lives of the people. In my years in ministry, one thing I've discovered is you can't make people want to do something. I mean, you can convince people, you know, to get involved or you can convince people to do this or that. But if they don't want to, man, there's not really much moving some people. You've, you've learned that, haven't you? If there's not a want to, then you're probably not going to get much out of it. You can give advice and you can give counsel and you can give prodding, but someone has to want to before they make changes. What's interesting about this story is it seems they all wanted to. There was no lack of desire in Jerusalem that day. They gathered together as one man. And what makes this passage so unique is they corporately desired revival in a unified way. They were all on the same page. And now listen, I believe that revival takes place. And, and this, may be, this may be, I don't know if it's controversial, some people may disagree with this. But I believe that revival takes place on a personal level. I believe revival takes place on an individual level because very time, often you will hear someone say, you, you know, that you're tra- praying for our country to have revival or our church to need, that we need and we need revival. And I understand what people mean. I do, but a country doesn't get revived. Individuals get revived. 
So individuals, America, does America need God? Absolutely. But America can't get revival. The Americans need revival. And a church can have revival only as much as individual members desire revival. Revival is not a passive thing that you just be having to be walking along someday and lightning strikes you and suddenly without a choice, you're revived. You know, chances are it would have the opposite effect, actually. On the other hand, the more individuals that experience revival at the same time, the more it affects the church overall. So I'm not saying that, it's, that corporate revival is not possible, but it, it, it's possible in the sense that individuals seek and desire revival. And if the, if the more individuals that seek and desire revival, the more it will feel like the church is having revival. Vive means life. So revive is to bring back life to something that once had it. Revival, folks, is for the saved. Revival is for the saved. It's for those that have, have, a, have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. Um, the lost can't be revived. They just need revival. You, know, they, they, you can't bring life to something that never had it in the first place. So if someone doesn't have a relationship with God, if they are lost, if they are not saved, they can't be revived. They need life to begin with. Another element of revival is that it occurs by choice. And I know many people talk about revival, again, randomly breaking out. But I believe it's much more deliberate. And honestly, it's much simpler than that. See, I believe that revival is a choice by God's people to hear God's word and respond to it. I'll say that again. I believe revival is a choice by God's people to hear God's word and respond to it. J. Edwin Orr said this about revival. He said, it's the spirit of God working through the word of God and the lives of the people of God. A friend of mine named Dr. Bill Rice, uh, he's an evangelist. He defines revival very simply. He says, it is a return to Bible truth. Revival is a return to Bible truth. And, and I, I, it's simply hearing God's word and responding to the truth. Now, listen, can, can it be marked by renewed excitement and zeal? Absolutely it can. Can it be accompanied by tears and emotion? Sure, I think it probably usually is. But listen, at its core, revival is when God's people respond to the truth of God's word and get things right with God. It's not some mysterious experience that just happens to bust loose in a service one night. As emotional as getting right is, revival is not primarily emotion. Revival comes when individuals respond to the Holy Spirit through the preaching of God's word. And listen, if the, if the majority would desire revival, if the majority at, majority at Eastside Baptist Church would desire revival, imagine the effects in our homes. Imagine the effects in our churches, in our church. Imagine the effects in our neighborhood and in our city. Can you imagine what that would be like? If true revival took place in the lives of every member of Eastside Baptist Church, somebody might write a story about us like Nehemiah chapter 8. That's what's happening here. The people have enjoyed this successful wall building project and they're done. No wonder they're excited. They're, now though, they're not just excited about being done. They know that the wall being built was important in restoration, but that their spiritual restoration is just as important. And I believe we have individuals on any given Sunday that desire true revival, spiritual renewal. But I believe the effect is muted if it's the minority. If the majority desired it, can you imagine the effects? 
And I have to ask tonight, do you want it in your life? Do you want to be revived? Do you see yourself as needing it? Is every area of your life exactly where it should be? And listen, if there's room for change, there's need for revival. If there's room for growth, there's need for revival. So refuse to be the one that limits it in our church family. I mean, if God wants to do something special at Eastside Baptist Church, give the Lord permission to use his truth to convict you and return to where you may have veered off the path in some area of your life. If we want to see widespread revival in the individuals at, at Eastside Baptist Church, we have to desire it. We've got to want it. The people come asking for God's word and they're ready to hear it. And here's where you see these prime conditions for revival. And it all centers around God's word. Revival begins with God's word. If revival is like building a house, God's word is the foundation. It's where it all begins. And here are the elements, the conditions present for revival. And first, we see God's word must be read. God's word must be read. It must be involved. Ezra read the law. Reading God's word is where it starts. This is where revival begins. Biblical preaching begins with God's word. We live in an age maybe that downplays the role the Bible has when God's people get together. And, I, and maybe you've been in services like that. And listen, there may be a rare case that we might have a testimony-only service, but it is my intention, and I, as a pastor, I don't believe I've ever had a service where I never opened the Bible at all or never read the Bible. Uh, it, but it should be our conviction that God's Word plays a role in every service. I mean, that's what makes it worth meeting together, is that God's Word is part of it. In Bible preaching, it's the foundation of a strong church. It's the foundation of spiritual people. We have no intention of minimizing the importance of God's word at Eastside Baptist Church. Consider the people's appetite for God's word. I mean, they ask Ezra to bring the book of the law. At the end of verse 2, it says, uh, And all that could hear with understanding were there. All the men and women, I mean, all those that could hear, all those that could understand, they were all there. And in, ver in verse 3, again, that he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from morning until midday. That's six hours. Six hours. Ezra reads God's word for, and for six hours, the Bible says at the end of verse 3, the people were attentive under the book of the law. They listened the whole time. Man, I don't want to belabor this too long, but uh, miracles happen in the Bible, and this might be one of them. This is like the Red Sea parting here. Listen, I do believe it's, it's good to evaluate ourselves when God's word brings it up here. So how's, how's our appetite for God's word? I mean, we're, I don't intend to have a six-hour Bible reading session. But do we desire God's word enough to be attentive when it is open? Do we anticipate the reading of God's word, not just here, but in our private time? Uh, another thought here is when we gather, how much attention do we give to it? Because um, just about every time we have a service, I, we stand and reread it. They listen for six hours in our corporate time together in God's word it, together on a weekly basis is less than that. This is a six hour one time session. And we're I mean, if we read God's word for every service that we were here the whole time, we're at about four hours in a week. Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. That's less than this one session. And listen, I think our appetite for and our ability to endure God's word is likely far below 
where it probably ought to be. And I, I'm not trying, and I'm not indicting you. If I'm doing this, I've got three fingers pointing back at me. I mean, you, you know what it's like to have, and I've done this, where you read a long passage of Scripture. And in my mind before, I've thought, it's like, this is ridiculous. We're going on like three or four minutes of standing here. I mean, I've thought those thoughts, and maybe you have too, or maybe you haven't, but I have. And I, I think we ought to evaluate our appetite for, and, and patience and attentiveness to simply just to reading God's Word. Just to sit and listen to God's word. And I'm going to speak to parents a little bit. And I'm not trying to meddle tonight. I want to encourage you tonight. I want to encourage you to train your children to be able to sit through each message. If your children are old enough to sit in the service, then they should be old enough to train to sit through the message. And I know that seems confrontational. I'm not trying to make it confrontational. But it is interesting. It seems like the same kiddos get up during... Just about every sermon that gets preached from this pulpit. And I believe it's a matter of training. I don't mean for this to get so heavy. I, I'm saying I believe it's a matter of training. See, don't assume that your children can't sit through a whole service. I think that sells our children short. For us to say, I just don't think that my four or five-year-old is capable of sitting through an hour-long service. I don't, I don't think they're capable. Uh, I believe they are. Plenty of parents in this room ha- would, would tell you they are because they trained their children to sit through a whole service. You know, I was sitting in my office just right before, he, right before this and I heard Brenna talking to one of, her, one of their kids and, and she says, okay, it's, you need to go potty before church time. Did, and least, I think it was Brenna. That sounds like a pastor's daughter, you know. You need to go potty before church. You know, I mean, that's, that seems like a silly thing to talk about in a service, but that's a pretty practical way to help train our children into believing that this time matters and we're not going to compromise it just because you need, feel like you need to get up. They can, I mean, they can sit longer uh, than we realize or think they can. Don't sell them short. Uh, take care of the bathroom breaks before the service. If you or your family have the habit of needing to move every service, evaluate that. If the people in Nehemiah 8 could be attentive for six hours, I think we ought to be able to be attentive for 45 minutes. Will there be exceptions? Absolutely, there will be. Will there be emergencies? Yes. And parents, we can tell it on our children's faces when they're not just bored. But to give the attention to God's word that it deserves, let's do better at disciplining ourselves to sit through the services. Start to finish. Parents, don't assume your kids have to be entertained either. And I'm really meddling tonight. I mean, the potluck's already set up. I don't have much to lose. (laughs) Parents, leave the toys at home. And again, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying we, we we are assuming far less from our children than they are capable of, I believe. So those toys and the entertainment and trying to give them something that has to keep them busy the whole time. Um, listen, I know kiddos get bored and would rather move around. And maybe you would too at times. I get it. But imagine the message we send to our children if through discipline we say, the word is too important to distract yourself or distract other people from hearing it during the message. And we can sit through it. We can be quiet. We can be still. 
Because, why? Well, because this matters. That's the message we're sending to them. It's not out of respect for the pastor. It's not out of respect you know, for the environment we're creating. It's out of respect for God and his word. And if he's trying to speak to somebody, if he's trying to work in somebody's life and maybe change their eternity, well, I sure wouldn't want to be the one that distracts from him doing the work he wants to do. You know, I know this is, is very practical, but when our children were coming to the age where they were going to be sitting in the service, we would practice with them. They would sit on the couch. We would set a timer. They couldn't, they couldn't play. They couldn't color it or draw. They would just sit. And at first, I mean, it's about two and a half minutes. That's about all you get. But with some training, it didn't take long to the point where I don't specifically remember ever having to take our children out at, at age three of a service because they were not behaving. Now, there are plenty of times they did misbehave. Plenty of times. Uh, but you train them on how to respond in those situations too. And I think it's, it'd be good for us as a, as a church family to step up with the movement that our children have during the service. Not because it's not ever possible to move, but because we want to, let, we want to send the message to them that this matters. We're going to sit through this because it matters. Their appetite for God's word was revealing here. So how are we doing with ours? Because revival is dependent on God's word being read. We need to be willing to listen. God's word is also, um, it must not just be read, it must be explained. So for revival, again, we're talking about conditions for revival. God's word must be read. We've already seen that. But God's word also must be explained. It says in verse 4, And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood all of those other people, and in verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. He was above the people. When he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. And they were, I mean, they were making sure that it was explained. That there's a clear understanding of God's word being, being given here. And here at Eastside, preaching is done behind a piece of furniture made for the purpose of preaching. And, and, I, and it's not the same kind of pulpit. I think this was probably more of a platform. And it wasn't just Ezra standing there. These other men were standing there. And it, listen, I know that many have gotten away from the liturgical or the traditional parts of a church service. I, I understand why. I get that. Um, but I'm not ready to lose the things that point to the importance of preaching. I mean, a pulpit like this, I know it looks old-fashioned. I know it's made out of wood, and people say, I mean, you could get acrylic, and you could be see-through, and all of these cool things. Culture says, get rid of it. Don't stand behind anything. Sit on a stool and dress down, and don't raise your voice and have a soul patch and messy hair. And I'm not even going to talk about skinny jeans, because that's not, you don't want to, you know, let's not go there, Okay. Preaching is important work. And I don't pretend to do it at justice, but I have enough respect for the ministry of preaching that I'm not ready to diminish it just so we can adapt to a culture that doesn't like to hear the preaching of confrontational truth. And listen, it costs us. It costs me sometimes. It does. And I don't always share those things with you, um, but just to have confrontational preaching of the truth um, is rare in this culture. And if, but if we value it, we can't let itching ears be our determining factor of how we present truth. 
So beside him, it says in verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood. Beside him. So let's focus here. Some believe these were priests. Others believe these were leaders of the people. You know, it really doesn't matter who they were. Here's the consensus that most commentators and most historians say they were there for two primary reasons. They were there, number one, to show their support and consent to what Ezra was declaring. They were, them standing there was saying, I support the preaching of God's law. We support Ezra. We stand by him. The second thing is to help. They were there to help bear the burden of teaching. I mean, this is six hours and they likely spelled him. And we find out later they actually helped explain the word, uh, the word of God or the law later. But listen, men of Eastside, I want to preach just or talk to you for just a moment and that every man of Eastside can help in these two ways. You can help. Uh, you don't have to stand up here to show your support for the ministry of the preaching. Um, but you can, you can show your support for the ministry of preaching by being present, by being here. Focus here. If you approve of and support what is preached, be here. I mean, if you think, yes, we, I support God's word, I support the pastor, it's not for my sake. I think it sends a message to everybody here. Let others know that preaching matters to you. Here's how you can let others know preaching matters to you. Come early. Say, that's not allowed, we're Baptists. No, it's possible. Listen, men, if we want to send the message to our children that preaching matters, it should be something we come early for so that we're ready for it. Let's as many as often as we can. And, and uh, Keena, I'm sorry to preach this point while you just walked in the room. Sometimes the Holy Spirit, it's a divine appointment here. Keena drove from, I think, Des Moines today to get back. He had a job out of town and, and he, he didn't have to come at all. I'm grateful that he did. Let others know preaching matters to you. Come early, come ready. Support the ministry of the word. Be vocal, men. And I'm thankful, I'm telling you, this morning I was so encouraged in the preaching by how vocal you were in the preaching. And it, tell, it helps me, I can't even explain uh, how much it helps me to know that there's support like that in the preaching. And sometimes the pulpit can feel like a lonely place. And so be, we want our families, men, to value the important things. Be present when God is, God's word is preached and not just here. Be in this room. I mean, it's amazing how there are, every church has some there. You just know they're, they're rarely going to be in the sanctuary when the preaching takes place. And again, I'm meddling tonight. And I, I don't know why I feel I have this much liberty to do it. But I think it's important, men, to be in the sanctuary. It's hard to support the ministry of preaching uh, unless you're sitting in here. And, and it's hard if your family's hearing messages about important spiritual things and you're not getting it all out there. I mean, be together as a family. Sit and listen to the truth together. Be present when God's word is preached. That's the one way you can support the ministry of preaching. The second, work on your ability to stand before others and teach. These men, every man that stood there with Ezra, I have no doubt, they could have taken the book of the law and they could have done their own explaining of the book of the law. So we need, and I'll just be honest, we need more men that are comfortable opening God's word, word standing in front of people and helping somebody understand and apply God's word. I'd love to have a number of men that they say, I'm ready, I've got a message, I'm comfortable standing in front of people. And you're saying, well, that's just not my comfort zone. Well, that's all the more reason I think God could use you. 
Because he takes our weaknesses and, and through his strength, he makes them even more effective. We need men that can stand and teach and preach. In verse 5, when he opened it, this is, this is uh, interesting. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. And for he's above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And I know there are different takes on it. And, and I don't believe that it's right or wrong. I don't believe it's spiritual or not spiritual. But listen, my reason for standing when we read God's word is because, number one, I do believe it's in the Bible. It's biblical. But number two, it lets guests know that the word means something to us. God's word is important to us. And I'm not saying that a preacher that doesn't have you stand is saying God's word's not important at all. I'm just saying in my own conscience, in my own mind, then I want the culture to know that when we open God's word, we're going to stand for it. Where else, let me ask you this, where else in this culture can people go and observe a group of people that clearly respect God's word? You'd be hard-pressed to find that these days. Honestly, I mean, you, people are burning this book in the streets in our country right now. So um, who's going to then, then as a corporate group say, we stand for God's word. We respect God's word. I, I would love it if the fact that, I love the fact that the people stood automatically. I mean, this just shows that they were so hungry to hear God's word that when Ezra opened the law, they, they, the natural thing for them to do was to stand as he read it. And honestly, I, I think I'd like to get to the point that when I'm preaching, let's develop the habit that when I give you the passage, let's just stand out of respect of God's word. And maybe not even have, you, have to give you the instruction to do it, but you just do it because, hey, the word is being opened, so I'm standing up out of respect. And, and uh, there may be times where if I give you instructions not to stand, that's fine, but just assume that as soon as I give you the text... Let's just stand and we'll see who the first people up are. It's kind of a contest, you know, like whack-a-mole, you know. So I won't whack you for standing. Okay. Verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. This verse doesn't need much explanation. And listen, I don't ask for amens a lot. But I do believe the more, that more amens would typically be appropriate. And if truth is stated, be responsive. If it's something you agree with, be responsive. This morning, I'm telling you again, it was a blessing to those of you that were vocal. Thank you. And let's keep it up. And you say, well, I'm not really sure, you know, in this culture what people think of that. Well, 1 Corinthians 14 says that when guests come in, I'm not necessarily the one that's convincing them. It's the people that sit in the next pew or the, and next to them on this side or behind or in front. The, the people that are around them. In other words, you will do more convincing to our guests, according to 1 Corinthians 14, than probably I will. Your response to God's word, your engagement to God's word and your attention at being attentive to God's word will likely make a much bigger difference in the person sitting near you that's a guest than the way that I stand up and preach it. And I think amens. I, I, I make a habit not to ask amen as a question mark. I'd like for it just to be the Holy Spirit prompts you, you agree with it, and you're going to support the ministry of the word. Verse 7, also, and they've got the list of names, and it says at the end of verse 7, they caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. The Levites, or the men, whoever they were standing there, they, this is where we see the need for God's word to be explained. It needs to be read. 
but it's most impactful when we teach and explain it. See, some would say that to be absolutely biblical then, it means everyone has to stand the whole time, just like the end of verse 7 indicates. I'm not going to go that far, but I do think our appetite for the word should help us overcome some of the things that prevent us from paying attention the whole time. Verse 8 says, they read in the book of the law of God distinctly. They gave the sense. They caused them to understand the reading. Listen, the goal was not to fill time, but to understand the word. And our desire in every lesson, in every message preached here is that you would understand. And I'm not, I know not every message is a home run. Not even every message. Are, some aren't even singles. Okay, I'll admit that. It made sense in my head. But where there's truth, folks, there's help. I'm going to say that again. Where there's truth, there's help. And you are responsible to be engaged and respond. That has never been the responsibility of the person delivering the message. And I do my best, and I'll just be honest, the way that I approach preaching is I do my best not to preach simply to emotion. And a lot more decisions might be made that way, but I believe the best long-term growth takes place when truth from one text is clearly presented practically to the people sitting there. Emotion based on truth is fine, but emotion without or in spite of truth is dangerous. So don't depend. So what I'm saying is don't depend on emotional appeals to make change. Truth should do that work. You know, it's the truth that makes us free. And even if it's presented as dryly as can be, if God's, God's Holy Spirit can use truth in your life by it simply being read, then the delivery shouldn't impact whether or not you respond because truth, though through the Holy Spirit, is what makes the difference in our lives. So God's word must be read and explained. It must also be applied. Look at verse 9. It says in Nehemiah, let me, let's go down. It says, this day, about halfway down, it says, this day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Verse 10, then he said unto them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What a wonderful thought. You know what? They were, they were given instructions. And the instructions were given to them about how to deal with a holy day, which this was the Feast of Trumpets. Israel had a number of feast celebrations. They had a number of holy days, but they'd been captives. Listen, they'd been captives in Babylon. They, they, they needed instructions. They didn't know how the feasts were supposed to go. They, they hadn't had anybody really clearly giving them instructions. The feasts were meant to be joyful. What I love too is these feasts were meant to be joyful. He said, mourn not, nor weep. He, he said, all the people wept. But at the end of verse 10, it says, be, neither be ye sorry. It's the joy of the Lord is your strength. And Israel had a number of these celebrations but, but they assumed that it was full of sorrow. And Nehemiah and Ezra, they were trying to tell, no, it's not about sorrow. Uh, this religious system was about joy. It was about gladness. It was about rejoicing. What it's saying is in the, the Baptists in us should be happy. It was okay to feast and enjoy it. It was okay to celebrate. 
They were supposed to take, also take care of the poor, is what he's implying there, those that have nothing prepared. The point is, here it is, God's word must be applied after it's read and explained. They, they are told exactly what they're supposed to do. Nehemiah says, no, here's what you've got to do. Uh, you've got to apply the word. Here's, here's what it looks like. You, you go out, uh, you go your way, you eat the fat, you drink the sweet, you send portions into them for whom nothing is prepared. Um, this is, these are the instructions. They're giving application. And application is not very exciting. But, but if you hear God's word without a plan to do something with it, the Bible says you're primed to be deceived. James 1 says that hearers of the word that aren't doers are deceived. In application, it's not tedious. It's not unimportant. It matters. Think about it. If revival, listen, if revival is dependent on response to truth, how can you respond to truth if you don't know what to do with it? Application is vital to the process of revival. And listen, here's another important point is, is I don't believe that as members of Eastside Baptist Church that I have to tell you every single application. I can't think, I can't possibly think of every application. And I try to put myself in people's shoes and I try to think, okay, this person is in this situation and this person is this age group and they've got kids this old and this person is here. And I try to think about applications that apply to those groups. I, I try sincerely to do that. Um, but, but God doesn't just place it in the, at the pastor's feet or on my shoulders to tell you exactly what to do with it every time. You should, while you're listening to preaching, make a habit of applying it to your life. You apply it. You come up with a way that God wants you to change in, in a daily, on a daily basis in your own life. It's amazing how many times even that I have preached a message and, and I don't make any mention or application in a certain area. Uh, but later somebody comes to me and they tell me, you know what God spoke to me about? They spoke to me about this area right here. And I'm like, I would have never thought of that. It didn't cross my mind at all. I love how the Holy Spirit can do that though. Uh, you can make your own application. If you're thinking, then you, you have plenty of ways to apply God's word. So God's word must be applied. It must be read, explained, applied. And God's word must also be responded to. And I'm not going to read all of this. I, we understand. They, go, they start giving then instruction on the Feast of Tabernacle, Feast of Tabernacles. And, and the people, it says in verse, in verse 12, And all the people went their way to eat and to drink, and to sin portions. You know what's interesting? Is at verse 10, that's exactly what Nehemiah told them they were supposed to do. You go eat and you go drink and you send portions to those that don't have anything prepared to the poor. And what did they do? All the people went their way to eat and drink and send their portions. You know, they were serious. They responded to God's word and they went out and they obeyed. They were repentant about their error, but they obeyed completely. They, they immediately went and they made the change. Instructions on how to keep the Feast of Tabernacles were presented at the end of the chapter, and they followed those to a letter. Listen, if God's word is desired and read and explained and applied, it's all great, but if God's people don't respond, it's all done in vain. Listen, how is your response to God's word? Obviously, this applies to the invitation. The people here were so hungry for God's word that they grieved and wept when they realized they weren't where they needed to be. When's the last time, friends, when's the last time that you grieved over your own spiritual condition? 
When's the last time as an evaluation where you examined yourself and you looked at yourself in light of where you were and where you should be and it grieved you and it caused sorrow and it caused repentance? When's the last time you responded to God's word in a service? Don't be one of those that rarely or maybe even never moves. Before you blame that on the preaching, all that's required for response is the presentation of truth. If all we ever did was read and explain the meaning, that's enough truth to help us. Where there's truth, there's help. So take responsibility for your responsibility in revival. If your job is to respond, be responsive. When it's read, be engaged. When it's explained, seek to understand. When it's applied, think about how it applies to your daily life. And when it's over, don't leave the service and forget. Go and and respond in the service, but respond as, as soon as you can by doing what God spoke to you about doing. Determine a plan to see it through. One person said revival is repentance, rejoicing, and results. And that's what you see here. You see the repentance when they realized where they were and they cried and they were sorrowful, but then, they, but then they were told, no, this is not a day of sorrow, it's a day of joy. So they rejoiced that they got right. But they didn't stop there. They went out and results took place. And I think, I believe that in, in God's people, there's a tendency for the repentance to take place and the rejoicing to take place that we got things right But as soon as we exit the front doors, the results aren't there. And we find ourselves right back where we started. Because there's a disconnect between the repentance and the rejoicing and the results. The obedience. And I desire revival. I think you do too. But I don't need to focus on revival at Eastside. Or revival in America. Listen. I need to focus on revival in Jason Jet. And if each one of us would get serious about it, get serious about God's word, get serious about our response, I truly believe revival is waiting. And actually, it's not as far away as we think. If revival is a return to Bible truth, that can happen in the next five minutes. If revival simply is simply the Spirit of God working through the Word of God in the lives of the people of God, that can happen tonight. It can happen in your life. So stop waiting for lightning. Stop waiting for something unexplainable. Come with a desire. And when God's Word is preached, respond. I read a story about a Lutheran bishop who visited a church in California and there, he saw this banner. It's a stirring red and orange banner with these words, Come Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. And there was a picture. Uh, these words were pic- under a picture of fire burning. Unfortunately, the bishop couldn't concentrate on the banner because the sign directly underneath the banner said, Fire extinguisher. Oh, the irony. See, what makes the Watergate revival in Nehemiah 8, which is what I have come up with calling it, what makes it so special is there didn't seem to be any extinguishers. There didn't seem to be anybody there that day that wasn't on board. And I wonder if that's why the revival had such an effect. 
I mean, an, an extinguisher doesn't affect whether or not somebody else experiences revival, but, he, but an extinguisher does limit the effects of the revival. So maybe we should choose to be an accelerant, not an extinguisher. And let's see maybe what God does when we all seek revival to the same degree, at the same time, together, by giving the right attention to the Word of God and responding as we're supposed to. It all starts with the Word. And maybe it's time. It's not about lightning. It's about our approach, going back to the basic approach. When God's Word is read and explained and applied, that we respond. Let's be people that respond to God's Word, and maybe we might be people that get to experience true revival at Eastside Baptist Church. Let's, let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.